0: This episode of Back Talk is brought to you by longtime bitch media sponsor Gladrags, who bring you all the essentials for a safe, sustainable period. Learn about cloth pads and menstrual cups when you sign up for their newsletter at gladrags.com and be entered to win a mini cloth pad starter set. Make sure you tell them Back Talk sent you.
1: Welcome to Back Talk. I'm Amy Lamb here with I'm Sarah Merck. And we are your feminist snappy thing review <laughs> of the last week in pop culture. Each week we talk about three things, and this week we will be talking about Josh Duggar, um, Surgeon General's Surgeon's General speaking out against Abstinence Only Education and Inside Amy Schumer.
0: So let's kick it off with the Josh Duggar controversy. Oh, Josh Duggar. Uh, See, I did not even know about yes. this TV show. He's on the TV show. He's the, he's the eldest son on the TLC show, 19 Kids and Counting. That poor mother. Which is about, <laughs> which is about a family led by Jim Bob, is and, the name of the Yes, dad? Jim Bob the dad. Jim Bob the dad, Michelle the mom, and their increasing number of children. Yes. And I guess their trials and travails, like, what is it like having 19 kids? Yes, like in a comp-
1: pretty much like a compound.
0: Yeah. yeah. The show's been on for years, and but this week um, it came out uh, that, about in, that in 2003, um, Josh Duggar confessed to molesting several girls. It's not clear who these girls were, if they were his sisters or relatives or friends, um, but that he confessed to molesting several girls. The family knew about it, didn't tell anybody for a year. Then they went to their church officials, told some church officials. The church officials didn't tell anybody for three months. They told a state trooper who didn't tell anybody and that state trooper was then later prosecuted for child pornography. It this didn't come out. The way that this, the way that this was finally investigated and led to a police report that was, that, uh, was finally filed in 2006 was that the, show, that, was that the family was um, supposed to be on the Oprah Winfrey show and somebody emailed the show saying, like, you know, there's been this accusation of child molestation in this family that's going to be on your show, and so the Oprah Studio sent that email on to the uh, Department of Human Services, oh my and gosh. that led to an investigation. Wow, isn't that ridiculous? I mean, it's like, it's like, so all the way along here, there were times when this 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 child molestation could have been investigated, and it had to get all the way to Oprah Winfrey's studio. In order to become a police report,
1: right? And it's just crazy because, like, the entire time, it kind of felt like they were trying to self—I don't want to say the word police, but like self-police, like what's happening with the case. And then even when they went out to outside authorities, the they dropped the ball as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, another thing was that Josh Duggar was fifteen at the time, mm-hmm. and so. I don't know that much about the family or the show, but it and but in the subsequent statements that everybody's has released, it just felt like everybody feels like this was some weird youthful indiscretion, uh-huh. you know, that he did when he was like fifteen to seventeen. Um, and he, I remember reading a statement that he said he talked, he confesses to his wife before they got married, and now they have three kids. Um, and in his statements, I think I don't have it in front of me, but that he said like, you know, it was a. You know, it it was a mistake that he made that could have ruined his life if he had not taken care of it.
0: Yeah, they posted on Facebook. I have a statement. So they posted their official statement after this news broke this week about the molestation. They posted on Facebook. Um, Josh said, "I understand that if I continued down this wrong road, I would end up ruining my life." And it's like, dude, this is not about you. Right. <laughs> this, is about, this is like the like my main concern is like, what happened to those girls? And what happened during the year that nobody discussed it? What happened in the three years before a police report was filed? What happened after the police report was filed? It looks like nothing Nothing. really happened. Except there was finally like a paper trail for it. Right, But nothing, nothing happened. And it's just, it
1: just, I think that his statement just speaks so much about, um, like his family structure or the culture that they are trying to, Mm -hmm. uh, promote is that like, he's worried about you know, affecting how it could have ruined his own life and nothing about, you know, anything about the victims at all. Um, And he was the executive director for a nonprofit fundraising group for the Family Research Council, right? And, I mean, they were a group that spoke out against same-sex couples being able to adopt children or something to that effect where it's just homophobic policies. And it's just interesting that, like, TLC um, is feels comfortable airing has and has been airing the show, uh, supporting a family that was like, you know, very conservative and, and, and like in their own sort of, uh, you know, like they, they promote this lifestyle of like a family
0: should be a husband and a wife. And they're like two dozen children or whatever. We actually bitch ran an article about, um, the Duggars back in 2007. It feels like eons ago. The article is called multiply and conquer. And it quotes, um, like, the media critic Jen Posner, um, who was working for Women in Media and the News. And Jen Posner pointed out, like, it's no surprise that these families would be so appealing to corporate media. They provide a convenient way to combine messages about the rejection of birth control, male as almighty head of household, and women as obedient breeders into one handy story. And that's what the Duggars were all about. They were saying, you know, we're just going to take as many children as God gives us. And that's what family values looks like. And so I think this is like uh, a curious place for that story to wind up.
1: I guess we'll just have to see what will happen uh, with the fallout with the show, because I think that like a huge chunk or probably the vast majority of their income comes from the show. uh, And to support so many kids and their families, because like now their kids have grown up and they have had families, you know, and they've been on like magazine covers and things. And they have their own storylines and narratives on the TV Mm -hmm. show. It's like, what's going to happen to them now?
0: Yeah. And I think, I mean, the the response to this, to the Duggars has always been like, well, you know, you can't criticize people for having that life. Like if what they want is to do this, why not just let this freaky deaky family do whatever it wants, but they're on national television. You know, they have a huge platform there. They're making a lot of money as like celebrity reality show people. Um, And like, it makes you question like, okay, when you just sort of let a family go and have its commune with its 19 kids, it's okay to let people have whatever kind of lifestyle they want, but not if it's shielding child abuse, not if it's shielding molestation, not if you're saying, you know, live and let live. And that means that it's going to take three years for the police to find out about a child molestation case and it requires Oprah Winfrey's studio getting an email about it. You right. Know?
1: And then you also have to wonder like did tlc know because how is like it's it's hard it's difficult to believe that uh, like oprah winfrey studio would know about this but yet tlc wouldn't know about this yet they continued airing the show knowing that there's probably you know this, this family secret um it's just it's so mind-boggling that you know things can grow to be these deep dark secrets or open secrets that people know um and yet you know. And yet
0: there was TV cameras around all right. the time. You know, like they're living their lives on reality television underneath the microscope of TV. How did TLC not know about this earlier? Well, they probably, I mean, I'm not going
1: to gonna offer any conjecture, but yeah. money needs to be made, right? So that show made money for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just the end of like their their understanding of how they should have handled the case. Mm-hmm. That's just my like really capitalistic view of probably what happened behind the executive producers' doors.
0: Yeah. I feel like I often wind up ending rants being like, end capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> Next up, we're talking about some news that everyone, including us, overlooked last month, which is that Congress sneakily approved $75 million for abstinence-only sex ed last month it was slipped into a bill about medicaid reform i didn't read anything about it and this is something i care about i don't think anybody heard about it really until this week three former surgeons general published an uh, op-ed in the washington post um saying like what the hell <laughs> what are you doing why, why are you funding why are we still funding abstinence-only education um yeah the three surgeons general which at such a Funny way to yes, say it. Yes, I, I had to fact check that to make sure that's how it was. <laughs> it's okay when you have multiple Surgeons General. It's Surgeons General, not Surgeon Generals. Isn't that weird? I guess that's Okay. Just <laughs> anyway, uh, including uh, let's see. Yeah, it was it was Jocelyn Elders, David Satcher, and Richard Carmona wrote this really cool op-ed in the Washington Post. It's so rare to hear people who are involved in politics say anything that's like frank and. Pointed and that i agree with so i was really excited to read this op-ed they said basically what are we doing funding abstinence-only education and pointing out that this 75 million dollars is an increase typically uh, over the past few years since 2010 um we've given 50 million dollars to abstinence-only education which is insane we've still been with. doing 50 million dollars for abstinence-only education now we're doing 75 million why are we doing this and they said we call for age-appropriate, medically accurate, evidence-informed, and comprehensive school-based sexual health education for young people. Ignorance is nobody's ally, and education remains this nation's most powerful tool. Dang.
1: Dang. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and when I read that, I was like talking to you, and I said that like after
1: every paragraph, they should have just inserted like a flashing gift that said "booyah." Booyah.
0: <laughs> well, because it's disappointing because actually. Sex education over the past, like, um, five years or so has been getting better in the United States. I mean, for a long time, we gave, like, I, here's the stat, we gave $176 million in 2006 to fund abstinence-only education. And in 2010, after Obama got in office, that switched. And we were funding $190 million for evidence-based sex education. That's, like, Actual sex education, <laughs> and, then, and only fifty million dollars for for abstinence-based. But still, that's fifty million bucks, and now it's seventy-five million. And what the Surgeons Generals were saying, Surgeons General were saying, is that it's super frustrating from a public health standpoint to see these programs because um, abstinence-based sex ed like doesn't work, and it leads to. And when you have actual sex education, which teens want, they want the information, they want to be informed, they want to have all the relevant information at their fingertips. Uh, teen pregnancy rates go down, STD rates go down, birth control rates increase. Like when you have actual sex ed, teens make smart, informed choices. So now let's talk about inside Amy Schumer. So Um, I basically (laughs) wanted to talk about Amy Schumer because I'm like, what... What is the deal what's with Amy Schumer? Jam? What's 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 Amy Schumer's jam? So, here, okay, so this
1: is my very casual viewer knowledge of Amy Schumer. I first learned of her um years ago when she used to be like one of the um comedians that would do these celebrity uh roasts on Comedy Central. That's how I was introduced to her. Um so she's a stand-up comedian and she was like super raunchy and blue and and stuff and it, her, her comedy didn't just it just didn't appeal to me. Um and then all of a sudden, she got a show on Comedy Central, and uh, I was the show is called Inside Amy Schumer. Yes, 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 very tongue in cheek. Uh, and I wasn't that into the show um, because I think that from my perspective, it just seemed really skewed to uh, Comedy Central's demographic, which is like young white men or middle-aged white men or old white. men. <laughs> but uh, and I, I, from what I had seen at the time, like during the first season, it was just like really raunchy sex jokes and stuff and that wasn't interesting to me um but I mean in reading things about her show since then it, I guess like a lot of her she did a lot of sketches that was like based on like observations about gender or like gender bias and or, or like double standards for women and sex and things like that but just recently she just started she just started her third season of Inside Amy Schumer and um for some odd reason like it's like all of the little clips from her show because the, the way her show is formatted is like um, sketches and then it's interspliced with like she does like a, a woman on the street thing where she interviews folks with random
0: questions. And so it's little comedy sketches yes. and then interviews that kind of thing. Yeah. And then she also interviews other folks. Um,
1: but her sketches have like recently been going viral online and her, the most recent season opened with um, sort of like a, a parody of Friday Night Lights and Rape Culture and that one went, that clip went crazy viral because it was uh, sort of skewering uh how pervasive rape culture is and is, and it's like its connection with sports culture and it was actually a really interesting um take on it if you in that way um so i was I, I was as a person who was like not a fan of hers before and then seeing her new stuff now and also understanding that like her work is really problematic um, since forever I think that's also one of the reasons why I was turned off to her
0: yeah I've always I mean I don't really watch that much tv but I've read about Amy Schumer uh, before and I feel like she's gotten a lot of criticism especially from people who are writing on tumblr from like social justice tv watchers I pretty much have only read criticism of inside Amy Schumer's the the tv show right um but then suddenly it's different it feels like different this season or it feels I, like but, more people are talking yeah, about it I, I, the thing is i don't think it's different i think because the criticisms that i've
1: i've seen of her that i've read of hers and also i've seen in her stand-up is that she does she does jokes that um that are like race-based or you know or where she's skewering uh, certain ethnicities and they just don't work they're just like s- flat-out racist um and there's like no like tiptoeing around that they're just not good um and and you also have to think about like who it's coming from. You know, it's coming from like uh, a blonde hair, blue eyed, uh, young white woman, and these jokes just fall fall flat. I don't need to repeat them. You can like look them up online. So, so there's that piece of about her comedy. But I think that like in this new season, what maybe what's happened is that um, her comedy's gotten smarter and like it's more well done, because so. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk about her was I just recently saw her, um, her 12 Angry Men parody, and she devoted an entire episode to this, and it's actually really
0: beautifully done. So this is a parody of the play in the movie 12 Angry Men, which I've seen that play. It's like, it's like a jury, and they're deciding on a, on a um, murder case, right? And, and it, the whole jury thinks that this person's guilty. And right. one person says, maybe, maybe they're not guilty. Yeah. And the whole like, play is their deliberation process. Yeah. There's like
1: a lone dissenter. So and, what happens in the parody? So in the parody, it's a, it's shot in black and white. Like the original film was from whenever ago. Um, and there's actually even like a frame by frame recreation of some of it. And like, I really appreciated like the artfulness of it. And in the, and in the parody, the case is they're arguing about whether or not Amy Schumer is hot enough for TV. Uh-huh. And so they, like all these men, mostly white men file into the jury room. And like, there are some amazing actors in there as Jeff Goblum's in there, Paul Giamatti, um, mostly white men. And there are two men of color. There's Kumail, um, Nanjiani from Silicon Valley, not, uh, Big Bang Theory, BT <laughs> <VT> dubs, <laughs> uh, and also Adrian Martinez. Um, and so they get into a room and the lone dissenter is this actor named John Hawks. And he's like, well, you know what? I, I think that she is she is hot enough for TV. And it's just like, it's it's like an absurd, it's an absurd sketch.
0: All right, let's talk about it. Let's get it in here and take a look at it. You want to see the dildo? He wants to see the dildo. He's going to see the dildo. We all know what it looks like. But what are we going to get from seeing it again? I, I'm sick of it. I've seen it 10 times. I'm sick of it. The
1: gentleman has a right to see the exhibits and evidence. Dildo
0: is pretty good evidence. No one will pork her. God, it looks like a femur. I mean, why even make those things? Women don't need orgasms. That's science. Lots of people have them. I have one.
1: Hey, hey, what's the big idea? What are you playing at? Oh, bother. It's my wife's. She doesn't use it because she's
0: alone? Quite the opposite, actually. We use it and we love it.
1: It's like the most absurd thing, but it was like, you know, it was interesting. And it was well done. And um, and, even, and even though it was a room full of men talking about her, at the very end of the episode, you see like a, a blooper reel and you actually see um, Amy Schumer walk in and she has like her headset on and you could tell that she was directing the episode. You know, she's behind the camera. Even though in that one scene, the blooper reel, she comes in to kiss Paul Giamatti, which is kind of weird. <laughs> but it's like, um, I appreciated it because, you know, in that sense, I could see that like, Here's a woman um telling a story from her perspective. And it worked for me, even knowing her problematic background and her history in comedy. Uh and and I think that this is one of those instances where it's like um not everybody can be for everybody. Mm-hmm. And like well, and also
0: like she can do good work and also do work that's frustrating. Yeah. Or, I mean even Especially if, as like as a comedian, you can be like yeah, like 20% of your jokes I don't like at all, 10% are horribly offensive, but 60% of them make me think about something new, and right. like, and, that, and that can be thought-provoking. You yeah. know, like there's nobody who creates media who's perfect every time. Yes. And like when you're looking at it with a critical eye, you kind of have to take the good with the bad and be like, okay, what do we want to see more of and what do we want to see less of? Right.
1: And like, and also in this 12 Angry Men inside in Amy Schumer sketch, um, this sketch also kind of only worked because she's a white woman. I, I feel like it would have like been kind of awful and terrible if it was a woman of color they were talking about. Um, because of the way they were talking about her, I, 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 I cannot imagine it being, I don't, I don't know how it would have looked like well, maybe there's a female woman, like a woman of color community who could pull it off. But I just think that like it worked because she has the privilege of being a white woman and they could talk about her in this specific way. Um, and also like uh, another clip of hers that went viral was
0: the um, the, the last fuckable day. Yeah. The yeah. Viking funeral thing. Oh, wait, what's the Viking? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The that's, that's the, the last, last fuckable, fuckable day. <laughs> and so in that, it's like four. No, it's three like fantastic Hollywood women. It was Patricia Arquette, yeah. Julia Louise Dreyfus, and, um, why am I? Tina Fey. Tina Fey? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And they're sitting around a picnic table, having a picnic, and they're celebrating somebody's last fuckable day. I think it was Julia Louise Dreyfus's. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Her <laughs> last fuckable day. And so basically it's like, oh, she's aging out of Hollywood. Like now she's only going to be cast as grandmothers and mothers. No more getting cast as a love interest. And... Amy Schumer in the skit comes along and finds them having this picnic, and she's like, "Oh wow, I want to have this picnic with you." And she's kind of horrified, and she's like, "What? What? like, but you, you can't, you can't just say that you're never gonna be the love interest again." They're like, "Nope, from now on, I'm only like sassy old women." Right, and it's like, and, and that piece was is was fun and, and
1: and says a lot about like our culture and media and how um like the kind of work women can get or not mm-hmm. get. Um, but again, it's like, it was very white, you know? I mean, like, I I appreciated what she was saying in it, but it's like the fact that like, we're talking about three white women who were, you know, quote unquote, at one point fuckable, but not anymore, theoretically. But then what about all the masses of like other types of women that like never even got to get to the point where they're Mm -hmm. being seen as fuckable to begin with? Um, so it's just like. You know, you can appreciate parts of what she does. And then there are parts where I'm just like,
0: ah, I'm cringing. All right. So we're at the end of the show. And at the end of Back Talk, we talk about one thing we read, one thing we watched, and one thing we heard this week. Hooray. Yes. I'm going to start with one thing I read, which is this great short story collection called The Bloody Chamber by the writer Angela Carter. Um, This is a book that I didn't know anything about. I'd never heard the name Angela Carter. I didn't know anything about this book. Um, But Penguin... Book send it to our office it's a book that came out in the 1970s and is being re-released now um, and what it is it's a collection of reworked fairy tales from a feminist modern perspective and this is something that's like lots of people do now there's like a whole genre I think of like reworked fairy tales but Angela Carter who's a British author was one of the first people to do it and they're beautiful they're they're like gorgeously written stories that are Kind of like spooky and have some horror in them, but these but they're from the perspective always of the women in these fairy tales, um, who persevere often, and I mean it's I mean if you just tell me oh yeah it's like oh it's like feminist horror with um, <laughs> I'm like yes I will read that book, um, and the introduction to the book is written by the author Kelly Link who just had a new book and is a really popular author right now. Um, and we actually have an interview up on our website, bitchmedia.org, with Kelly Link about The Bloody Chamber and writing uh, feminist short stories and spooky feminist horror. So I'm excited about that book. I stayed up till like two in the morning reading it. It's that kind of book that keeps you up. What fairy tales does she rewrite? Um, she rewrites Bluebeard is the first one, which is like a horrific story of a guy that kills all his wives and 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 then like the in so many of these old fairy tales you're like left being like what the hell you know like like a wife is just murdered and you're like and then the tale ends and you're like wait what hap- what ha- what happened there and so it's it's fun in these ones um all right the big the thing i watched this week that i can't get out of my head that i keep talking about is the new mad max movie I love it and I know it's gotten a ton of hype now as being like a feminist action film but um I still keep thinking about it I wrote a piece on um our website last week about the eco-feminism of the film and it just kind of like um I was not expecting to see that you know I went into Mad Max being like there's gonna be a lot of stuff blowing up uh there's gonna be some car chases you know some like people gonna get stabbed I don't know you know I like post-apocalyptic movies I like action movies so I went to it for that reason and then, actually, it's, uh, it's all about, like, uh, women fleeing a patriarchal society and trying to establish a more egalitarian culture uh, that revolves around heirloom seeds and, <laughs> and uh, uh, women owning their bodies. Wow. And so, Imagine along that. with sweet action sequences and, like, and a really impressive car chase and, like, fabulous costumes and dramatics. So, I love Mad Max. I have to go see it again. Awesome. Oh, and the thing that we
1: listened to this week, um, I recently rediscovered the singer. Her name is Melanie Martinez. She was on the third season of The Voice.
0: Your favorite reality TV show. It is not
1: my favorite reality TV show, but it's. it used to be one of my...
0: You like, talk about the voice like kind of
1: a lot. You know what? <laughs> I feel like the voice had a heyday between seasons three and five because that's the seasons I watch religiously. <laughs> but in the past two seasons, uh, I'm gonna get a little sociopolitical here. But I felt like they kept um, kind of a lot of the like the white singers were being buttressed, and then like the singers of color were just kind of getting like not or like they're just kind of getting not enough play. And as singers of color were getting not enough votes i would stop watching huh. yeah it's i have this weird psychological thing going on when i'm watching the show um anyway <laughs> melanie martinez was a super fun contestant in the third season uh she was she had like a really quirky look and she was really young i think she was a teenager at the time and now she released an ep called um dollhouse which she's kind of doing a little tour on and um I just think that her music is just so like eerie and and dark and like um, gloomy, but also has like this really fun warmth and pop vibe to it. And so
0: I'm gonna play you out with um, "Dollhouse" by Melanie Martinez. Yes, just in time for summer, a gloomy, dark <laughs> pop album. <laughs> hey girl, open the walls, play with your dolls. We'll be a perfect family When you walk away It's when we really play You don't
1: hear me when I say Mom, please wake up Dad's with a slut And your son is smoking cannabis No one ever
0: listens It's wallpaper prisons Don't let them see what goes down in the kitchen Places, places Backtalk is a podcast that's hosted by Amy Lamb and Sarah Merck and is a production of Bitch Media. Our producer is Alex Ward. Bitch Media is a reader and listener supported feminist nonprofit. If you like Backtalk and want to support our work, please head over to bitchmedia.org and donate. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Sister. This episode of Back Talk is brought to you by longtime bitch media sponsor Gladrags, who bring you all the essentials for a safe, sustainable period. Learn about cloth pads and menstrual cups when you sign up for their newsletter at gladrags.com and be entered to win a mini cloth pad starter set. Make sure you tell them Back Talk sent you.